You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, An Anchor for the Soul. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad you joined us this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And we will be in chapter 12 today. Chapter 12. So let's get into the word now. For the past few months, we have been studying through the letter to the Hebrews. Now, one of the things that we like to do here at Whitefields is take a book of the Bible and study right through it from beginning to end because we believe that's the best way that we can truly hear God's message for us through the scriptures and let him speak to us and get the whole thing in context the whole way. And Hebrews is one of the greatest books in the Bible because this is a book which links together the Old Testament and the New Testament and shows us that the whole Bible is about Jesus and how he saves us. Now, just a couple weeks, we are going to be finishing up this study, and we are going to be starting a new study. So we're going to first do a special just two-week series for Palm Sunday and Easter. It's going to be called Rise Up, and we'll be doing two services again on Easter. So I want you to be praying and thinking about who it is that you're going to uh, invite to join you uh, here at Whitefields on Easter as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and everything that it means for us. And then after that, we're going to be doing something different. For a couple weeks, we're going to take a break from studying books of the Bible, and we're going to do a series called The Trouble Is. And the point of this series is that we want to address some of the biggest hurdles that people have in believing and embracing Christianity. And maybe there are questions that you struggle with. Even you say, maybe, you know, I want to be a Christian, but I I struggle too. And maybe there are people that you know who say, well, I can't be a Christian because I just can't get over this thing. Well, we want to address some of those things. And our hope is that we can, through that, remove some of the barriers and hurdles and help people to embrace the gospel and trust in Jesus and trust in the Bible wholeheartedly. So that's what's coming up. But for today, we are in Hebrews chapter 12. So would you please read along with me? Read our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And and, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Then verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we we pray that this morning we would study your word with with hearts full of joy, Lord, because you have taken hold of us in Christ. And Lord, may we also take hold of you by faith this morning. Lord, would you speak to us through your word, and we pray that it would have its full effect on us, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few years ago, I started running, mostly because my doctor told me that I was pre-diabetic. So my grandfather was diabetic. And then the other thing is that I really hate needles. And so I was like, the last thing I want to do is have to, you know, shoot insulin into myself every day. And I just, I'm super scared of needles. So I was like, you know what, I'd rather do whatever I can to not be diabetic. So the doctor told me, you know, if I change my diet and if I started getting exercise regularly, then I could probably avoid or at least postpone 
diabetes. So I started running because I figured that's the most time effective way to get exercise. You can get the most exercise in the least amount of time. Over the last couple of years, I've run uh, almost 1,300 miles and I hate running. I hate running, but I love running. See, I absolutely hate it, but I also love it. See, I tend to hate it the most during the 10 minutes prior to getting out the door. That's the worst. I just, I even tell my wife as I'm walking out the door, I hate running. I don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? And then I hate it for about the first five minutes. And then after that, I start to love it about five minutes into my run. And then after my run, I love running. And it's interesting how that works, how the anticipation of the activity is actually worse than the actual activity itself. And I think that's true of a lot of things in our lives. It's not the things themselves, but it's the anticipation of those things that, that gets us down. But this letter that we're reading, the letter to the Hebrews, was written to people who were struggling in their faith. They were discouraged. And as a result of their discouragement, they were considering giving up on Christianity. And part of the reason for their discouragement was that their lives were full of struggles and hardships and difficulties. And some of them were asking, hey, look, if God loves me, if God cares about me, then why is my life so hard? Why don't things ever break my way if God really loves me and cares about me? And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people, maybe a lot of us in this room today, who ask that same question, don't we? And the writer of this letter is, is writing to address that question. And the answer he gives us is basically this, that in Jesus, we have a hope that is so much bigger and so much better than just having a problem-free life here and now. And so to give up on Jesus because you're frustrated with your circumstances would be, first of all, illogical. But secondly, it would just be the worst possible thing you could ever do. Now, in this section, the writer tells us something else that's really important here, starting in verse 12. Something else that's really important for us to remember about the difficulties and frustrations and hardships that we experience in this life. And that is this, that God, in his sovereignty and in his providence, God actually uses the difficulties and the hardships of this life in order to work in our lives and transform us from who we are today into who he desires us and who he wants us to become. And what that means for us is this. When we face the difficulties and hardships of this life, rather than having our faith be shaken by them, we can have incredible confidence even in the midst of them. We can have incredible hope in the midst of those things that God is working indeed all things together for our ultimate good if we are his children so that we might ultimately experience greater joy and ultimate joy in him. So the title of today's message is Hurts So Good. Hurts So Good. And there are three things that this text talks about. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about, oh, the agony. Oh, the agony. Secondly, we're going to talk about from a coach to a father. And thirdly, we're going to talk about unspeakable joy. So, oh, the agony from a coach to a father and unspeakable joy. And this is the progression that the text takes as well, as you'll see. So let's begin with this first point. Oh, the agony. Now, how many of you have been watching the Olympics? Today's the uh, last day of the Olympics. And here in this section, what's interesting, and what might not pop out to you at first until you really dig into it, is that what the... What the writer's describing, he's painting a picture, he's drawing a scene with these words, and it's a scene of the Olympic Games. That's actually what he's describing, is an Olympic metaphor, an Olympic scene. So when he says there in verse 1, Since therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely or so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So when he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, linguistic, linguistic, 
linguists tell us that that word cloud in Greek is kind of a euphemism. It's a way of saying or way of speaking about a large gathering of people. So a large group of people, a great number of people. So here we are and we're surrounded on all sides by a great crowd. That's the picture he's drawing. Who are these people in this crowd? In the previous chapter, chapter 11, which we just wrapped up, the writer was taking us through history and giving us a list of some of the great people of faith who have gone before us. People like Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Isaiah. People who had faith and walked with God even in the face of great difficulties and hardships and trials. And now after talking about them, the writer now transitions and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great crowd, this great cloud of witnesses, therefore let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the image he's painting is of an Olympic stadium and the stands are full of people. They're full of those who have gone before us in the faith, who have walked with God and their lives bear witness to us of what it means to live by faith and what it looks like to trust in God with your life. And all these people, it's as if they're in the stands surrounding us, watching us and cheering us on as as we're down there on the field and it's our time to step up in line and take the baton and run that race. And what's interesting is that that word race actually in Greek, of course that was the language this letter was originally written in. The word race is the word agon from which we get our word agony. And if you've ever run a race or competed in any kind of athletic competition, you know that there is a degree of agony involved in there, isn't it? Like last year, I ran this uh, Carbon Valley Half Marathon out in Firestone. And during the race, they had these photographers who were kind of stationed at different places along the course. And so after the race, you could go online and you could see your photos and what you looked like. So I went online and I found the pictures they had taken of me. And so at the beginning of the race, I looked pretty good, but as the race progressed, I looked worse and worse. Like by the end of the race, I looked like I had aged like 30 years and that I was almost dead because it's actually how I felt. In fact, I, they took a picture. Here's one of the pictures of me. That's actually a picture of me. I just gaunt and old. And uh, actually that painting was painted of a guy who just finished running a race. You might not know that. And the word for race is the word agon, agony. Oh, the agony. And, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, this is what life is like. Sometimes life can feel like an agonizing struggle. Isn't that true? But this word agon, I'll tell you this, it doesn't only mean a race, a running race. It can refer to any event, any sporting competition that was part of the Olympic Games. Actually, it can refer to any Olympic event. And many Bible scholars believe that what the writer has in mind here is actually an event which was practiced in the, in the original Olympics in Greece, which was called the pentathlon pentathlon and the pentathlon was the climax of the Olympic Games it was considered the ultimate competition and in the pentathlon it tested you in a series of disciplines so there was a running portion there was a jumping portion there was a, a discus throw and a javelin throw and the climax of the pentathlon was this kind of MMA match where it was like boxing and wrestling at the same time and they would wear these gloves that would kind of uh, be rough around them it would protect their hands but they were rough and so when they'd punch each other, it would draw blood. And so that's the final event of the pentathlon. It would usually, you know, culminate in a lot of blood being shed during this kind of boxing, wrestling, MMA match. And so if you look down at verse 4 here in chapter 12, 
Notice that he says this, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And so a lot of Bible scholars, what they do is they look at this and they say, he's not talking about suffering persecution from outside, right, to the point of having to die for your faith. What he's actually talking about, he says, is struggle against sin. This is an inner struggle. So what it's describing, he says, is really a picture of the pentathlon, that that culmination of the Greek Olympic Games. And the whole picture here is that of the Olympics, the people in the stands surrounding us, those who have gone before us in the faith, cheering us on. And, and so in other words, life isn't like a marathon. Rather, life is more like the pentathlon. It's a series of different challenges. It's a regimen of different difficulties that you must go through. In verse 11, he says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So here's another Greek word for you. That word train that's used there in verse 11 is the Greek word gymnazo, from which we get our word gymnasium. And and the picture is this. Life is like a pentathlon. And God is your coach and he's taking you to the gym and he's training you to make you stronger so that you can succeed and so you can win. And so when difficulty and hardship comes your way, you might feel like everything is out of control, but the truth is, it's not out of control. There's a plan. Even if it's not your plan, there's a plan. See, if you've ever had a trainer or a coach, then you'll know this. They make you do a bunch of things that you don't really want to do in order to push you. Why? In order to push you so that beyond where you would usually go. Why? So that you can get stronger. I watched this documentary about the Russian Olympic hockey team in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s in Russia. And in the summer, they didn't have the facilities to have an indoor ice rink so they could practice. And so what the coach did is he took his hockey team down to the seaside and he said, all right, see all these rocks next to the sea? I want you to pick up all these rocks and I want you to carry them into the sea. And so they carried all these rocks into the sea and then they said, okay, what do we do now? And he said, all right, great, good job. Now I want you to go get those rocks from the sea and bring them right back here, right? In other words, who wants to do that? Nobody wants to do that, but that's what a coach does to you. They make you do things, why? So that you can get stronger. And trust me, those people were getting a lot stronger by doing what they were doing. So this metaphor is that God is your trainer and it means that when things don't go according to your plan, It doesn't mean there's not a plan. It's just his plan and not your plan. And it is ultimately for your good. So God uses difficulty and hardship in order to accomplish in us what he wants to accomplish. Now on the topic of suffering, there are two things that we must absolutely understand that the Bible teaches about this topic of suffering and where is God in the midst of our suffering. On the one hand, you need to know that suffering and evil and brokenness are bad. They are absolutely bad. They're not from God. The Bible says that God is not the author of evil. God is so opposed to these things, so opposed to suffering and brokenness and sin and death, that he took the most radical and drastic measures. He sent his own son into the world to die in order that he might end evil and suffering forever without ending us. In John chapter 11, there's a a very interesting story. It's a story that we're going to be studying for Easter this year. And I won't give away any of that, but I just want to tell you about one part of the story. Here's what happens in John chapter 11. Jesus has this friend. It's one of his disciples and his close personal friends named Lazarus. And Lazarus gets sick and dies. 
And so it says that Jesus comes and Lazarus died right before he got there. And the sister Martha comes and tells Jesus, our brother just died. And it says there, what's so surprising, it says that Jesus wept. This is the shortest verse in the Bible. It's John eleven thirty five. It says, Jesus wept. Two words. Now here's what's so weird about that though, that just a few minutes later, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus back to life. And it makes you wonder, you know, if Jesus knew that he's going to raise this guy back to life, back from the dead, then why is he crying? Why is he upset? I mean, if my car breaks down, but I know exactly how to fix it and I can just fix it real quick, then I don't get that upset. I don't fall into despair. I don't, I don't freak out about it. It tells us in a few minutes though, or a few verses later in verse 38, it says that Jesus continued or once again groaned within himself. And that's an interesting phrase. And that phrase means to be upset, and it actually means to be fuming with anger. To be fuming with anger. And what that means is that when Jesus was weeping, he wasn't just, wasn't just quiet, you know, one tear running down the face. No, he was actually angry crying. Like if you've ever done that or seen somebody do that, that's what Jesus was doing. He was so angry that he was emotional and he was weeping, but he was angry. So here's Jesus, and the Bible tells us that all things were created by him. There's nothing that was created that was not made through him. Together with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus, in the beginning as God, created all things. And everything he created, he looked at and said, it is good. He created man, and he said, it is very good. And now here he is, up close and personal, seeing the effects of sin, seeing the disastrous effects of sin and death in the world, and it's hitting him personally, and he's upset by it to the point where he's angry. Here he is, and his good creation is broken. He's upset by it. This is the reason why he came, is to deal with this, to put an end to this stuff, and to heal what is broken. And so we must have this perspective on suffering and evil and things that are wrong, that God absolutely is opposed to it, that he doesn't like it, that he came in order to die to end it. But at the same time, there's another perspective that we must have on suffering that this text gives us here in Hebrews chapter 12, and that's this, that God uses, he actually uses the brokenness of this world in order to accomplish his purposes in the world and in our lives. See, doctors will tell you that in order to live a long, healthy life, you need to get regular exercise. You need to sweat you need to go beyond what feels comfortable and what feels good. See, when you exercise, what are you doing? You're putting stress on yourself. You're putting stress on your body. You're giving yourself opposition, aren't you? And unless you do that, the doctors will tell you, you, you cannot be healthy. And the same is true for other areas of life, right? Like your faith will never grow unless it's tested. You cannot become more patient unless your patience is pushed to its limit. You cannot become more compassionate unless you are put in uncomfortable situations. You will never become more courageous until you have to face your fears. If you never go through difficult things, you will end up a shallow and immature person. The other thing about exercise is that when you're doing it, you know, there's this thing where you feel like you're getting weaker and weaker. But in reality, that's when you're getting stronger, right? So if you lift weights, your muscles begin to feel like noodles, right? And you can't even do anything afterwards. You can't even lift a pencil. You can't even stand up to get in your car. You can barely lift anything. You feel so weak. But it's through that process that you actually get stronger. In the same way, when you are pushed to your limits, 
when your faith is tested, when your patience is tested, that's the way that you get stronger than you ever were before. And God wants to take your life, he wants to make you into something great. He wants to take you from where you are now and do great things in your life and through your life and the lives of other people. And oftentimes he uses the difficulties and the frustrations and the hardships in your life to accomplish those purposes. So let's talk about our second point where we move from a coach to a father, from a coach to a father. So starting in verse five of this text, the author suddenly changes metaphors. He stops talking about the stadium and he starts talking about the home. He stops talking about a coach and he starts talking about a father. Now, why would he do that? Well, here's what I think. I think it's because if you're not going through something, you're just thinking in theory, then yeah, it is helpful to think about God as a coach and a trainer. But when you're in the midst of something, when you are facing difficulty in your life, it's not very comforting to think of God as your coach and your trainer who's sending exercise into your life. But it is comforting to know that God is your father, your loving father who cares about you and who's committed to doing what's best for you. And what he's sending into your life is something which is called, in Greek, which is here in the text, it's called paideia. Paideia, which is the word which in our Bibles is translated discipline. And discipline is just such a bummer of a word. Like, who gets excited about discipline? Nobody. But this is an interesting word, paideia, because it's a little bit different than the way that we tend to think about discipline. So if this is the Greek word from which we get our word, pediatrics. Pediatrics. Now think about what a pediatrician is. A pediatrician is a doctor who is concerned with the overall health and well-being of a child. And my kids have a great pediatrician. We love her. And, and my kids actually like going to see the pediatrician because they know that she cares about them and that everything she does, even if she pokes them with a needle, she's doing it in order to help them. She's not there to hurt them. She's there to help them. Now they don't like being poked with needles. Who does? But understand that the pediat they understand this. The pediatrician is not there to hurt them. She's not just hurting them for the sake because she doesn't care about them. No, she's doing everything she does for their good. And that's a really important perspective for us to have on God in this way because a lot of times when we think about discipline, we think of it in terms of punishment for something that we did wrong. And I want you to see that's not what's being talked about here. See, everyone understands that in order for a child to grow up and become a healthy, well-rounded, functional adult, they need to experience discipline. They need to experience instruction. Sometimes they need to be told no. Sometimes they need to face consequences. And, and they need to experience those things in a safe environment from people who genuinely care about them. And if they don't get that kind of loving instruction and discipline, then they won't grow up to be healthy people who are able to succeed in life. And we use this phrase in our culture. We talk about spoiling a child. Spoiling a child. And how do you do that? How do you spoil a child? The way that you spoil a child is by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience hardship. That's how you spoil a child, by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience hardship and difficulty. And here's the thing. If we believe that that's how you spoil a child, that's how you ruin a child, is by not letting them experience any hardship and by always giving them what they want. Because if you do that, what will happen? The child will grow up to maybe be lazy or to feel entitled or to lack humility or to lack empathy towards other people. And if they grow up to be those kinds of people, they will suffer for it in the end. That's why Proverbs chapter 13, it says, if you don't diligently and lovingly discipline your children, that's not, it's not more loving of you to withhold discipline. In the long run, it's, it's less loving to withhold discipline. But think about this. If we say that's the way that you spoil a child is by giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience any kind of hardship, 
But think about that. Isn't that what so many of us expect from God? Isn't that what so many people expect from God? We want God to give us everything that we want and not let us experience any difficulty or hardship. And what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us here is this. Hey, if you think that that would be a bad method for you to parent your kids that way, well, then why would you ever think that God would, would parent you that way? And here's what you can rest assured of, though. And this is good news. That if you are God's kids, if you have become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you can be sure of this. God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. He has perfect knowledge, right? He knows the future. He knows all situations and circumstances. And so sometimes that might include some things that are painful, Sometimes it might mean God saying no to our request or our prayer or the thing that we want or saying at least not right now. But you can rest assured that if you are his child, then he is absolutely committed to your best interest. See this paideia, this idea of paideia, this loving parental discipline that's for healing. It's not, talk, it's not about payback. It's not about retribution. It's not vindictive. It's not, you know, done to hurt the child or shame the child. Rather, it is loving discipline that is done to shape and to correct and strengthen the child for the child's own good. And that's why the writer says in verses 9 and 10, he says, earthly parents discipline their kids in a way that seems best to them, but God's discipline is always for our good. In other words, earthly parents sometimes miss the mark. Isn't that the truth? Sometimes I know as parents, we react in anger Sometimes we, we get short-tempered, we get uh, Im impatient with kids. Sometimes we make it about ourselves instead of about them and their good. But even where earthly parents have failed and fallen short, God doesn't. And maybe there are some of you, I know this is the case for a lot of people, you didn't have good parents, or maybe you had a bad relationship with your parents, or maybe your parents weren't around or they were checked out. Maybe they took out their frustrations on you. Maybe they were passive-aggressive towards you. But I want you to know God isn't like that. He's not that kind of father. He's a true father. Sometimes people will say, you know, I have trouble accepting this, that God is a father. I have trouble relating to that whole concept because I had just such a terrible relationship with my own father. or My father just wasn't around. I didn't have a dad. I don't even know what that's like. Well, if that's you, here's what I would encourage you in. I would encourage you to say this. You still have a picture in your mind of what a good father should be like, of what, of what an ideal father would be like. And I want you to know that's the kind of father that God is. He's the perfect father. He's always there. And he always acts in your best interest, even when he says no, even when he allows you to experience some kind of hardship. It's always because of his immeasurable, undying, unrelenting, unending love that he has for you. And in verse 10, it says this, that God does this for our good. Why? So that we might share in his holiness. So that we can share in his holiness. Can you see your difficulties and hardships in that way? as paideia, as this loving, healing, corrective discipline, as God's love in your life, bringing it into your life so that he can work things out for your ultimate good, so he can bring his glory and his goodness into your life. And that through that pain and that frustration that you experience, he's actually working in your life to remove the things that don't belong there, the foolishness and the idolatry and, and those bad characteristics that exist in your life so that instead you can share and you can grow in his holiness and more of his greatness and his glory. So you can see this at work, for example, like in the life 
of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, the life of Joseph. Now here's what happens. Joseph comes from a dysfunctional family where his dad had two wives and a bunch of kids and he played favorites. He played favorites with his wives. He favored the one wife over the other wife. And then he treated the one wife's kids better than he treated the other wife's kids. And Joseph was the favored one. He was the oldest son from the favored wife. And so uh, his dad treated his mom with favoritism. And then when his mom passed away, that favoritism switched to Joseph. And, and Joseph became the object of his favoritism. And, and as a result, Joseph was on his way to being a terrible person. A terrible person. Here's how you can know that. You can see it in the way that he talks to his brothers. So for example, Joseph had a dream one day that his brothers all bowed down before him. And so the next day he goes out and he tells them all about this dream and he's kind of gloating in their faces about this dream that, hey, even though I'm younger than you, dad made me the boss over you and you're all going to bow down before me. And so it's no surprise that Joseph's brothers hated him. And the first chance they got when their dad wasn't around, they attacked him. They were going to leave him for dead in the wilderness, but then they realized that they could actually make some money off of him, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And throughout his life, we see Joseph, after this point, experiencing just a series of incredible hardships, right? He's attacked, he's betrayed, he's lied about, he goes to jail. But through all of these things that Joseph went through, God actually used all of those things for Joseph's good and to accomplish his plans and purposes in the world. It was as if God brought the outward brokenness, the brokenness of the world into Joseph's life in just the right way so as to heal the inner brokenness that was inside of Joseph. So God brought the outer brokenness of the world, the lies, the hatred, the betrayal. He brought them into Joseph's life at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right amount to address and to fix and to heal what was broken inside of Joseph, to drive out his arrogance, to destroy his pride, to get rid of his elitist attitude, and to make him into someone great, someone humble, someone who is compassionate, someone who is generous and forgiving and gracious and empathetic. And God used him then to save many, many lives. So at the end of it all, Joseph is able to say in Genesis chapter 50, he says, what you guys intended for evil, God intended it for good. You intended it for evil against me, but God intended it for good. And see, God does that same thing in our lives. He brings the brokenness of this world in contact with your life in just the right way, in just the right time, in just the right amount, so as to change and to address and to fix what is broken inside of us. And he does it for our good so that he, because he loves us, so we can experience his holiness, his glory, his greatness. And when you understand that, it changes your perspective on the things that happen in your lives. I often think about this. Think about Jesus' disciples on that day when Jesus is being crucified. And they see Jesus hanging on the cross. And what are they thinking? You got to imagine, what, what must they have been thinking? They must have been thinking this. How could anything good ever come of that? Here he is, this man who came to save the world, and there he is being executed, being killed, nailed to a cross, his blood flowing, humiliated. They killed him, the Savior, they killed him. How could anything good ever come of that? There, there's no way. There's nothing good that could ever possibly come out of something this bad. Have you ever said that phrase over your own life? Something happens to you? I know I have. I've said that. How could anything good possibly come of this? There's no way. There's no way that anything good could ever possibly come out of this. And yet, out of Jesus' death, did any good come out of that? 
Yeah, I'd say so, right? It was the greatest victory that the world has ever seen, the greatest victory in all of history. And here's the thing I want to tell you, is that if God could bring something good, something so good, something so incredibly wonderful out of something which at the time seemed to be so incredibly bad, then don't you think it's possible that he could bring something good out of whatever problem it is that you're facing right now too? I believe that he can. Let's talk about our last point, and that's this. Unspeakable joy. Unspeakable joy. Now, the question is this. How should we respond to difficulty and frustration in our lives? Here in Hebrews, we're told, first of all, how not to respond. Here's what we're not to do. We're not to give up on our faith and throw in the towel when things get hard. That, that's how many of us tend to respond to difficulty, isn't it? We, we say, you know what? This is hard, so I give up. That's what these people in this letter were doing. They had tried... But they said, you know what? This is really hard. So they quit. They stopped going to church. We read about that in chapter 10. They stopped going to church. They stopped seeking the Lord. They just quit because life was hard. And the writer's telling us, no, that is the wrong response. John Owen, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote a lot of other things. And one of the things that he wrote in another place was this. He, he did a lot of sailing. So he was a sailor. And here's what he said. He said, life is a lot like sailing. When a storm comes up, if you grab the wheel, you know, that thing that steers the ship, if you grab the wheel and you hold it steady, even though it might take everything you've got to hold on to that wheel and keep it going in the right direction, if you hold on with all of your might, then what will happen is that storm will actually help you get to your destination faster. It will actually move you to your destination faster because those storm winds and those waves, if you can hold on to that rudder with all of your might, it will get you to your destination faster. But if on the other hand, in the midst of a storm, you just check out, you go down below deck and you hide from the storm and you say, you know what, I, I quit, at least for right now. What will happen? That storm will set you back, won't it? It will drive you off your course and it will set you way back from your destination further than you were before the storm came into your life. And isn't that a picture of how our lives go? And the key is this, in the midst of the storm, hold on to that rudder, hold on to God, don't let go. And he will use even that storm for your good and for his glory. And that's why the writer says in verse 12, knowing this therefore, knowing that God loves you, that he's committed to you, that he's working all things together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, he says therefore this, uh, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame might be healed. How can we know that God is working all things for ultimate good? Well, come back with me to the beginning of the chapter. It says in verse two, here's how. By looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. And it says in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary. In other words, here's the deal. How can you know that God is absolutely for you? How can you be sure that he has your best interest in mind? Here's how. By looking to the cross, by looking to Jesus and considering what he did for you, the price that he paid, the suffering he endured for you on your behalf. It says that the reason Jesus did what he did is this. The reason he left the comfort and the security and the glory of heaven in order to come to our dusty planet and to walk our streets and be mocked and rejected and beaten and crucified, the reason he did it was because of the joy that was set before him. There was a joy that he wanted to take hold of, that he wanted to make his own. That's why he did it. Do you know what that joy was? 
You know what that joy was that motivated Jesus to do what he did? Think about it like this. What is the one thing that Jesus didn't have before he came to the earth? See, he already had everything, right? He had holiness. He had love. He had glory. He had the glory. He had the love. He had the holiness. Then what did he not have before he came to the earth? And the answer is you. Us. That's the one thing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't have before Jesus came and died on that cross. And it was the joy that was set before him, that prospect of saving you and redeeming you and restoring you to relationship with him both now and for eternity. He had your face in his mind. That is what motivated him to face the horror of the cross, the prospect of the joy of taking hold of you and making you his own. And so Jesus came to us and he took the ultimate suffering so that we could experience the ultimate joy. The joy of being redeemed, the joy of being forgiven, the joy of being declared right with God. The joy of knowing that when this life is over, we will have eternal life with him. There will be no more pain and no more tears and no more death and no more suffering forever. So how do you get that joy? Simply, you, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. He received the judgment so you could receive the reward. He received death so that you could receive life. And for you to believe in the gospel means this, for you to trust it, for you to rely on it, for you to cling to it, for you to commit yourself to it. If you do that, if you trust in the gospel for your salvation, what Jesus did for you and who he is, then you can know that. You can have that joy both now and increasingly for all eternity. And if that's true, and friends, it is true, then you know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to do what it says there in verse 1, to lay aside, to set aside any weight and sin and hindrance which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before you, looking to Jesus with your eyes fixed on him. It means this, you want to say, you know what, I need to get rid of anything in my life that is hindering me from running full speed after him. And that means it's not just bad things, but it's anything which doesn't help you in pursuing him in a greater way. Whatever that might be in your life, maybe it's some kind of sin, maybe it's an inappropriate relationship, maybe it's some kind of addiction, or maybe it's something more subtle, something that's not necessarily bad. It's just not helpful. It's not helping you to pursue him wholeheartedly. Why would you want to run a race carrying a bunch of unnecessary stuff? It's time to let that stuff go and fix your eyes on Jesus and run wholeheartedly after him. Amen? Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, this morning, we want to live with that kind of confidence that comes from looking to you and seeing how much you love us, how committed you are to us, and what you have done to save us. Lord, thank you that you are loving, that you are our loving Heavenly Father who brings that paideia, that healing, corrective instruction and discipline into our life even through difficulty and hardship. Lord, may we have that perspective as we go through the things that we go through. Lord, thank you that we can have that confidence. I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you and focused on you as we run this race that's set before us today and in this coming week. And we pray that in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 